Good to see you all on this um, wonderful Sunday that we have been given. Uh, This is one of those texts where I've had to inform the ushers, when I stand up to speak, be sure you lock the doors so no one gets out. Um, You will perhaps be encouraged to hear I'm not going to speak about money or giving. Um, You may wish when you find out what I am going to speak on that I was speaking about money or giving. I am I'm actually uh, at one of those passages where you would never take it on unless uh, you're committed to working your way through the text line by line, verse by verse. We have come to Luke's genealogy, right? The page from the phone book that made it into the gospel of Luke. So-and-so begat so-and-so begat so-and-so. Seventy-seven names if you count God. Uh, Seventy-six if you stop just short of that. But um, yeah, some of you probably, as you've been reading through the Gospel of Luke, you've skipped over this almost certainly. You get to it and then you just go to the end. Um, you were thinking, if you thought at all about it, well, I mean, Shirley Woodruff has enough common sense that he won't rub our noses in this passage, but if you thought about it some more, you thought, no, actually, I think he will. So uh, in my defense, I just want to say two things. First of all, I'm not any more interested in genealogies than anybody else is. Uh, We have two, I have two genealogy books at home, one on the Woodruff side of the family, one on the McBride, which is my mother's maiden name. The Woodruff book came out in the mid-1960s, so I'm in there, just, you know, Mike Woodruff, Michael John Woodruff, born 11660, and my uh, sister is in there, Kristen. Karen, and then my brothers, who are twins, who are seven years younger than I am, Karen and, and, the, and the twins don't make it into the book. So about the only use I ever had for this genealogy book was that occasionally... Uh, when we're in some sort of tiff, uh, Kristen or, or I would say to the others, what do we care what you think? You're not even in the book. Uh, we're not even sure you're, you're supposed to be in the family. So um, that's the Woodruff side. The McBride side uh, has been, all this stuff has been written by my uncle, who I've talked a little bit about. He's the guy who just recently retired, a few years ago, from the University of Texas. He was a professor of geology for 43 years and sort of world-renowned expert on sedimentary rock, uh, sand. He had this collection that was considered by some to be, you know, the biggest collection of sand, uh, most diverse kinds of sand from around the world. And at one point, this sand collection was confiscated by the FBI for various reasons. And so he's an interesting guy. And uh, when he retired, he just devoted his free time to genealogical research, traveling around uh, the United States and Europe and libraries and cemeteries, doing DNA matches and all this kind of work. Um, I saw him this past week. I was, I was down in Austin, Texas for a couple days. We got together, and, and uh, he gave me a rock, uh, as he <laughs> often does. Uh, Christmas, I would get rocks. Um, not like, you know, Charlie Brown, it's Halloween, I got a rock. But uh, I get quartz and geodes and marble and all these interesting rocks. And I, I, about 10 years ago, it suddenly occurred to me, 
what he had given me in, uh, one year. And I called him up and I said, hey, when I was about 10, that rock you gave me that I was playing with, all those, that rock that was all sort of fibrous and stuff, that was asbestos, wasn't it? You gave me asbestos. <laughs> and it's silent for a minute. And then he goes, um, a different uncle. Uh, it wasn't me. I didn't... I, <laughs> I said, no, I have three uncles. You're the only one who gave me rocks. Try again. And silence. And he said, uh, statute of limitations. Uh, you, you, didn't, you, didn't, you didn't come after me soon enough. So anyway, he's a very interesting guy, a fun uncle. And he's done all this writing about our own family. And I've read almost none of it. Uh, I just, I'm just not, you know, oh, I'm going to read genealogy today. It just never quite makes it to the to the tipping point. So I'm not any more into genealogies than anybody else is, but here's the thing. It's in, it's in the book. The genealogy that we're going to look at is in the book. We believe this book is inspired. It is unique. It is God-breathed. And uh, that all Scripture is inspired by God, 2 Timothy 3. All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for Uh, for teaching, for rebuking, for correction and training in righteousness. And so we want to look. If God saw fit to put this passage in the book, we want to look at it and see what it might yield for us. And I will also say this. uh, You'll be surprised. There's really some remarkable things to pull out of this text. So I'm going to read it for us. Um, I'm going to stumble through it. It is, uh, it's long. These names are almost nowhere else in the Bible. Many of them are hard to pronounce. Um, but I'm going to read it because I'm guessing that you probably haven't. And so this is the way I'll know that you will have at least heard it once. I begin with verse 23 of Luke chapter 3. Hear the word of God. Now Jesus himself was about 30 years old when he began his ministry. He was the son so it was thought, of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Mathet, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Janai, the son of Joseph, the son of Mattathias, the son of Amos, the son of Nahum, the son of Esli, the son of Nagai, the son of Math, the son of Mattathias, the son of Semyon, the son of Joseph, the son of Yoda. Okay, so if you're looking for your Star Wars fix, that's as good as you're going to get. The son of Jonanan, the son of Risa, the son of Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltiel, the son of Neri, the son of Melchi, the son of Adai, the son of Kosum, the son of Elmadam, the son of Ur, the son of Joshua, the son of Eliezer, the son of Joram, the son of Mathet, the son of Levi, the son of Simeon, the son of Judah, the son of Joseph, the son of Jonam, the son of Elikim, the son of Melia, the son of Mena, the son of Mathata, the son of Nathan, the son of David, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, the son of Salmon, the son of Nation, the son of Amanadab, the son of Ram, the son of Hezron, the son of Perez, the son of Judah, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, the son of Terah, the son of Nahor, the son of Sarag, the son of Reu, the son of Peleg, the son of Eber, the son of Shelah, the son of Canaan, the son of Arphasad, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahalal, the son of Kenan, the son of Enosh, the son of Jeph, 
Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, there are numerous genealogies in the Bible. I won't read any of the others for you today. Um, Genesis has several. The book of Numbers is essentially one long genealogy. First and Second Chronicles have quite a bit. Ezra, number of Old Testament books. There are two in the New Testament, two genealogies of Jesus, one in Matthew 1 and, and one in Luke 3. If you look at these collectively, uh, there are a few things that become important to note. They're obviously all different. Uh, if you study them, it's clear they're not intended to be exhaustive. Um, this passage was the son of, the son of, the son of. That's a little backwards. Almost everyone else goes the other direction. So it's the father of, the father of, the father of, or so-and-so begat, so-and-so begat, so-and-so. Begat, believe it or not, is actually a preferable word here. Because uh, sometimes what it says was the father of, whoever they're mentioning, it was not their son or even their grandson or sometimes even their great-grandson. It's the great-great-grandson. It's just saying is a direct descendant of. They collapse this down mercifully to make the list shorter, also to help us uh, memorize them, which is what would have been done previously. So there's three lists of 14 in Matthew. There's 11 lists of seven in Luke. Clearly, these are being crafted for people to hold on to in some pneumatic uh, aids. So they're not exhaustive, uh, but they're very important. Not to us. We really could care less about genealogies. If you ask people who their great-grandparents are, most people can't tell you. If you ask some people who their grandparents are, you'll hear them say things like, well, um, my grandmother was... Uh, her name was uh, Grammy, and uh, his name was uh, Papa. But you know, maybe those weren't actually their names. Um, you think? Probably not. A Jew could have traced his ancestry back to Abraham, without exception. This was important for all kinds of reasons. It was important for purposes of of taxation and census. It was important for purchases of general uh, real estate. Because the land had been distributed by God along tribal lines, if you couldn't prove you were, had some lineage to a certain tribe, then you couldn't buy the land. Uh, priests couldn't be a priest unless they could trace their ancestry back in some way to Levi. Kings weren't acknowledged unless they could trace their lineage back to David. So Herod the Great, who is king of the Jews at the time that Christ is born, is not accepted by the Jews as king, right? He, he has a, a whole branch of his family history uh, from the Edomites that makes him what was called a, a, a Edomian. And he tried to cover this up, but nothing doing. So in spite of his efforts to marry a, a prominent Jewish into a prominent Jewish family, in spite of building this massive temple, right, this huge temple that, that it takes tens of thousands of people decades to build, he gives it as a gift to the Jews. They still don't recognize him as king because he's got the wrong pedigree, the wrong lineage. Very important. The genealogies are very important to the Jews. Now, in 
the Gospels, we have Matthew and Luke. Matthew, um, they're the same genealogies in that they go to Christ, but Matthew starts with Abraham, goes uh, in the traditional way, tracing the bloodline of Joseph. He gets to David through Solomon. It's a legal document designed to say that Jesus fulfills the profile of the Messiah. He has the right pedigree. He was adopted by Joseph, and as Joseph's adopted son, he's fully Joseph's. Joseph traces his bloodline back to David. Jesus is qualified. Luke goes the other direction. He doesn't start with Abraham and go forward. He starts with Jesus, and he backs up. He goes through Mary's bloodline. He gets to David uh, through Nathan, not Solomon, but doesn't stop when he gets to Abraham, goes all the way back to Adam and then to God. Now, if you sit with these genealogies for a while, and uh, it takes a while, they don't sort of bubble up with insight and application very quickly, but if you've read through the book a bunch of times, then names start to sound familiar, some things begin to pop, and there are a few takeaways from this passage. For instance, it becomes obvious as you read the genealogies that um, God often takes a lot of time to do what he's going to do. Some of you know that from your own life. There are promises that God makes, in some cases, takes thousands of years between the promise and its fulfillment. There are places where prophets show up and they say, things are bad, the Messiah is coming. And hundreds of years go by before the Messiah shows up. Sometimes there's just a, it just takes God a long time to do what he's going to do. And as I said, some of you know that from your own personal experience. Another thing that the genealogies make clear, if you think about it long enough, is that we're, we're dealing with real history. That God broke in to time and space. This isn't, this isn't fable. This isn't myth, right? Luke doesn't do that. It's not a long time ago on a faraway land. He's very clear to document how he gets to where he gets. It's real people, real history. This is offensive to some people. In, in today's postmodern era, there's no problem claiming you have a truth, that you have found something that works for you, something that helps you sleep through the night, something that gives you a sense of peace. You're entitled to that, whatever that is. But if you make the claim that this is reality, it's history, it's real truth for everybody, well, that's, that's stepping over a line. But clearly, Luke steps over that line. In, in a fascinating uh, treatment of this passage, Tim Keller notes that if you go to Matthew's three genealogies, three lists of 14, that what a, a first century Jew would have almost immediately ascertained is that Jesus was the seventh seven. And seven is the day of rest, and the seventh seven is the year of Jubilee, and there's all kinds of things that go with that. And it would have been obvious that Matthew had crafted it to make that argument. There's a number of things that actually come out of these 
genealogical lists, I want to be sure that two are very clear to you today. The first one is the main one. This is the reason this genealogical list ends up in Luke's gospel. It's the reason anything ends up in Luke's gospel, and that is because it's part of an argument that Luke makes that Jesus is the one. The Gospels are written for a specific purpose. They tell us what it is. I'm writing these things so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ and put your confidence in him. There is a clear agenda. They are very upfront about what they're doing. And Luke is doing that, and he does it with the genealogy. Now, each of the Gospels is written to a different audience, and so they take a slightly different tact in how they make the case. Mark is written for the Romans. Rome is a multi-ethnic, multinational empire. Citizenship was for sale. Consequently, lineage didn't matter. That's not the way the Romans thought. And so Mark doesn't bother with the lineage of Jesus. Who cares? Not the way they think. John is writing to the Greeks, people who've been influenced by big ideas, by Heraclitus and Socrates and Plato and Aristotle. And so he opens with the big claim. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And this word for word is logos. This is a word that the Greek philosophers used. He is, he is going right into their wheelhouse. He is making a case for them. Hey, this is ultimate reality, God the, the, the Jesus Christ was fully God from eternity past. He was the Logos. Right? It's, it's a different argument for a different group of people. Matthew is writing for Jews. And, and there were many people claiming to be the Messiah at this time, but they, they're not qualified. They don't pass the first test, which is 2 Samuel chapter 7, that, that they are going to sit, they're going to be a descendant of David who's going to sit on the throne of David again. And so Matthew opens. I mean, Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, before Matthew has said boo, before there's any hint of the virgin birth or eternal life or forgiveness of sins, before anything happens, Matthew says, Matthew 1.1, 1, 1. this is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David. <laughs> okay, right? Before you have a chance to look away, this is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David. He goes, to be a descendant of David is even more exclusive than to be a descendant of Abraham. And so he goes right to David and makes this claim. Luke is writing for Gentiles. Remember, this is the report he is filing for Theophilus. He has done an investigation for Theophilus. And so he is filing this report. He doesn't stop with Abraham like, the, like Matthew does with the Jews. right? He goes, all you got to do for a Jew is go back to Abraham, and that's good enough. He goes all the way back to God. He's making the case that Jesus is God, fully God, equal to the Father, that they are, in that sense, peers. Uh, not quite a year ago, uh, Sherry and I were walking out of high school with our youngest son, Jason. All kinds of 
still athletes, there's practices going on, and there's all kinds of students, and there's a whole bunch of cheerleaders. And in order for us to sort of get from where we are to get to our car, we have to wait for this run of cheerleaders that are doing, you know, cartwheels and backflips and whatever it is that they do. And, and after they've sort of passed, I just make this comment and go, wow, it's been a long time since I did anything resembling anything like that. And Jason said, immediately, he says, not me, because I did a cartwheel two weeks ago. <laughs> and sort of looking at him, and he goes, somebody said, I bet you can't do a cartwheel. And he goes, so? I said, I bet I can. He goes, wasn't pretty, but I did it. He goes, you know, when you, they challenged me, so I did it. He goes, you know what, Dad? I'm going to challenge you right now to do a cartwheel. <laughs> I said, you can challenge me all you want. I'm not doing a cartwheel. He goes, come on, do a cartwheel. I go, I'm not doing a cartwheel. He goes, Dad, peer pressure, come on, do a cartwheel. And I said, "Uh, Jason, you're not my peer. Uh, I feel no pressure from you. Oh, a 17-year-old has told me that I won't be cool if I don't do this. Maybe I should do it. I go, I I feel no pressure from you, and you're not my peer. You're 17. Now, later on, as we were talking about this, I said, you, one day you, we will be peers. That would, that would be the way this ought to work. But um, you're not my peer now. What we get in Luke's gospel here is an argument that the father and the son are, in that sense, peers. They are, they are equal. One God in three persons. And this is part of Luke's effort to build the case. He opens his gospel by saying that supernatural activity was involved in the arrival of the one sent to announce that Jesus was coming. And then there's supernatural activity in the virginal conception uh, of Jesus to Mary. And then we have all these testimonies that are offered. Testimonies offered by uh, Elizabeth, right? Who am I, she says to Mary, who am I that the mother of my Lord would come and visit me? Testimonies by Zechariah about Christ. Testimonies about Mary herself. Testimonies then from Simeon and Anna, right? The the old man and then the, the old woman who were in the temple who say, look at Jesus and they go, this is the hope of Israel. Right, so Luke is just going along, building the case to say he's not like us. Everything about him was different. We get a little glimpse of Jesus at 12, and he's unique. We then skip up until this uh, time of his baptism. And at his baptism, we see that John the Baptist, who, who's everybody's following, everybody's listening to, John the Baptist's response to Jesus is twofold. One, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, and I'm not qualified to untie his shoes. I can't baptize you. You should baptize me. And then we have the Holy Spirit descending upon him in the form of a dove, and we've got the voice of God the Father speaking out of heaven. You are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. Right? All of these are pieces of Luke's argument that Jesus is the Messiah. 
He is the one. The Old Testament has been pointing forward to him. The Gospels are now all about him. The rest of the New Testament is going to point back to the Gospels and point back to Jesus. The argument of Luke's Gospel is put your confidence, your faith, your trust, your hope in Jesus. He is the Savior of the world. Listen to him. Obey him. Worship him. He is the one. There is no one like him. There's other things that we get out of this genealogy and out of this record, but the the main reason it's there is to remind us or to persuade us that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah. Now, I said there were two things, and the other one that I want to share with you today is, um, I think, just remarkably good and encouraging news, and it's this. The genealogies that we find in Luke chapter 3, and in Matthew 1 for that matter, make the case that God loves and is able to use to work through profoundly broken people from massively dysfunctional families. God is able to work through God loves Deeply flawed people from tragically broken pasts. For the most part, when we tell our story about our ancestry, um, to the extent that it's important to us, we tend to play up our links to people who are successful and prominent and play down, right, the, the scary parts of our family. Uh, so some people do this without even any justification to do it at all. Saddam Hussein famously claimed to be a descendant of Muhammad, right, because it was to his political favor to do that. Some people will say things like, I'm the 38th cousin once removed from Abraham Lincoln. Okay, wow. Hope that works for you. Um, by the way, I also know that Charles Manson was your uncle, but you're not talking about him. You're talking about... You're talking about your 38th cousin, Abraham Lincoln. So people tend to play up this and play down this. This was especially true in the ancient world when your genealogy was to some extent your resume. I mean, it, it was prescriptive. Your professional opportunities, your economic opportunities, who you were going to marry, a lot of this was all shaped by whose you were, who you had descended from. So to that extent, people worked hard to, to, right, to suppress parts of it. Again, Herod tried to block out half of his lineage that he didn't want people to know about. So it was very important, more so than those of us who live in America, where life were basically independent, self-made. We don't think that way. They thought that way. Consequently, it is very shocking to read through this list and actually start to dig down on these names and to realize that what we have here is a collection of murderers, idolaters, adulterers, thieves, slave owners, liars, right? I mean, this is a, this is a collection of, of a really motley group of people. Now, you... You might not realize that at first pass because even the names you recognize, you tend to only hear the upside of them. Like, have faith like Abraham. Okay, well, 
Abraham's faith is to be commended and celebrated. But Abraham also threw his wife under the bus on a couple of occasions. Right? David is a man chasing after God's own heart. Right. And chasing after another man's wife at the same time. Right? These, all the people on this list are broken. It is remarkable that they are not suppressed. Right? That this is the list that we would be given. In Matthew's gospel, there are, there are four women that are listed. Tamar, Rahab, uh, Ruth, and Bathsheba. Many things about this are shocking. First of all, women don't appear in ancient genealogies. Right? They, weren't, they weren't valued in that way. And so it's, it's quite a statement by Jesus to include women in his genealogical record. I mean, Luke's gospel is tracing the bloodline of Mary, and he doesn't even mention Mary. You just have to figure that out, that Mary is actually the one who's the descendant of, of these people. Right? Women were not honored, recognized in that way. But even if they were, these four women okay, are they're a bit scandalous. Three of them are Gentiles. And Jews at this time, many pious Jews wouldn't even walk on the same street that a Gentile had walked on, lest they get corrupted or polluted in some way. And yet, three Gentiles are in this list for the Messiah. This is is unbelievable to the Jews. And it's not just that they're three Gentiles. Tamar... And Rahab, in particular, are are sort of noteworthy for their scandalous sexual past. Tamar dressed up like a prostitute in order to seduce her father-in-law. That's what she's known for. Not exactly the kind of person you would list on your resume for references, right? Oh, you want to know what kind of job I'll do? Talk to Tamar, right? Rahab is known always as Rahab the harlot, right? That's just sort of like her name, Rahab the harlot, Rahab the harlot. Rahab is the one that, that uh, hides the spies when they're doing their scouting work uh, on the, the village in, in this Canaanite village. And r- why did they stay with Rahab? Because it was very common for her to have strange men into her house, and it wouldn't, wouldn't arouse suspicion. She is a prostitute. She's also a liar and a traitor. (laughs) And there she is in this list. Now, uh, Bathsheba's defense, I mean, we basically know that Bathsheba slept with David when she was married to Uriah. It's hard uh, to have the ability to say no to the advances of the king, so she doesn't get blamed a lot for that. But, okay, she is guilty of betraying the trust of her husband. And then Ruth... Ruth does many things right. She's celebrated for many reasons, but Ruth is an is a, uh, an Edomite, which or a Moabite, which means that she is the descendant of the incestuous relationship between Lot and one of his daughters. Again, these are not the people you list for references, and yet here they are, and they are here. I believe, in large part, to make something very very clear to us. God loves and God works through profoundly broken people from 
massively dysfunctional backgrounds. Just like me and just like you. On Sunday mornings, we meet Saturday nights as well. Saturday nights at 5 o'clock. Sunday mornings at, at uh, 8 o'clock. We meet at the piano to talk through the service, to you know, make sure everybody's there and who's doing announcements and what's happening here and just a basic to go through the service. Those services always, always, always begin with a prayer that is a, a prayer requesting God's blessing but is primarily a prayer of confession. Right? The, the plea that we make is God use even us. Right? We are not here. I am not here. Worship leaders are not here. People sharing their testimonies. Whoever's up here. We are not here because we are qualified, having lived good lives, having, having attained some level of spiritual maturity. Right? There's zero sense of that. There's zero sense that we can come on our own merit. We come boldly before God. We pray with confidence because we come in the name of Christ, right? And the finished work of Christ. But it's not with any sense that we can do this. I mean, I, you know, look, I can manipulate people. I can perhaps make you cry or make you laugh. I can maybe keep your attention. There's buttons to push. But, but that, that's fleeting. The kind of life change that we're after only comes as a work of God himself, the Spirit of God. And so we pray, we're not qualified. We're not capable of what needs to happen. We're not worthy to do what we're going to do. God, please use even broken people like us, full of sin and darkness and, and greed and lust and pride and envy and anger. Use even us. And the great news about the genealogies that we find in the New Testament is that that's who God uses. It's not that we're good enough that God can carry out his plan through us. It's that in spite of how bad we are, he is good enough that he can carry it out. It's not that we're sort of qualified, not just. It's that we're positively disqualified. But the grace of God is beyond that. And he is that wonderful and that loving. He loves even us. That's the good news. Not because we're lovable, but because he is loving. It's not about us. <laughs> it's about him. One of, the, one of the reformers, Zwingli, a contemporary of Martin Luther, says... The genealogies of Jesus preach the doctrine of grace. Right? Just this list of people remind us that we don't come to God on the basis of our own merit. Christianity is not this I do, it's this he did. He's the hero. He's the, Jesus is the only one that gets it right. And that's just part of the argument that Luke is making. Follow him. He's different than we are. And God loves you, even you, even me, aware of all our sin and fallenness. If we humble ourselves and come before him, God's love extends even to broken, dysfunctional people with tragic backgrounds such as 
we are. Let me pray for us.